Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by Sarah Spicer. Sarah is a news editor for the Committee to Protect Journalists. Sarah is a graduate of Emporia State University in Kansas, where she was editor-in-chief of her college newspaper. She got a master's degree from the Columbia School of Journalism and spent a year and a half covering climate change for the Wichita Eagle as part of Report for America. She was cited in editor and publisher on their 25 under 35 list. That's how I became aware of her. First of all, congratulations for that. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So we ask every person to start out the same opening question. I know you have a good answer to this. What's your journalism origin story? Yeah, so I, I think like most people, I started journalism in school, but for this, it was actually high school. My English teacher, Miss Botts, knew I really wanted to be a writer and just how important stories were to me. And so she held me, you know, back after class one day and, and really pitched journalism to me. <laughs> I think once something she said, she was like, Hemingway was a journalist, you know, <laughs> like writers are journalists. And so I kind of thought, okay, well, I'll do this. I'll prove like, I really have what it takes to be a writer, get into college. But when I got to college, I joined the Bulletin, the campus newspaper at Emporia State. And during my very first editorial meeting, I remember the editor-in-chief asking who wanted to cover this protest that was happening in response. A Black uh, tenure-track professor had been fired. And so this protest was just raising awareness that he had been the only Black tenure-track professor at the university at the time that he was fired. And so I remember I was just scribbling all, down every detail my editor was saying in my notebook and kind of absent-mindedly, you know, raising my hand because like, of course I wanted the story, but I was 18 and a freshman and it was my first meeting. So there was no way I was going to get it. <laughs> but my editor, you know, she was like, okay, Sarah. And I looked up and I realized I was literally the only one who volunteered. So I got the story. And, you know, from that moment on, I just, I was hooked on the bulletin. I was hooked on journalism, you know, I, I think before that I had a great deal of respect for journalism, but that story and especially that newspaper, you know, totally changed my life. And, and that's where I fell in love with the craft. Is there anything in your heritage or family or upbringing that would have lent itself to your telling stories? Yeah. So I grew up in a really rural location in, in Southeast Kansas, a tiny little town called Miotache. And uh, there are probably some households there who you know, revere journalists and journalism and the people that were raised watching, you know, TV newscast as kind of a family activity in the living room, but that wasn't my family. You know, like we didn't have the New Yorker. We certainly didn't discuss like politics or current events. I think the most my parents even used the newspaper for was tracking down those garage sales every, every weekend <laughs> and the Sunday funnies. <laughs> So where, did, where does the storytelling come from for you? Yeah, so growing up in a situation like that where journalism wasn't appreciated, I think it kind of, there was a little bit of rebellious spark of curiosity as to like what this was. But storytelling, you know, the women in my family have a very strong tradition of oral history. And so growing up listening to stories about great, great grandma Cordelia, who came to Kansas in a covered wagon, lost her sister on the trail, you know, all the way to like my favorite aunt who traveled the world as an 
wife, you know, and so I just, yeah, I, I love storytelling. And even though the majority of my family are in the medical profession, I was from a very young age known as the writer. <laughs> <laughs> that happens, I think, for a lot of people. So let's go through a couple of other things before we get to CPJ. You mentioned Emporia State. You won some awards there, the most prominent of which was for the paper exposing a Title IX sexual assault cover-up involving a tenured professor and a student. When the student reported it, the school made her sign a confidentiality agreement. There was a lot of reporting that went into that. I read multiple stories on it. Can you explain what went into it and what role you played in it? Yeah, so that story actually came to me in an anonymous letter. So someone out there, I still don't know who this person was, but they knew that this unfairness had occurred. And so they they wanted to share it. The letter was pretty vague. It just kind of gave an overview of the situation without details or names. What I knew was undergraduate psychology student had been assaulted. She reported it. She did all the steps she was supposed to. Campus police, Title IX office, they did their separate investigations. They found a preponderance of evidence that the this, this incident had taken place. And despite faculty and administrative recommendations that the professor to be terminated, he was not. So the first month was primarily just looking for her and for people who knew more. So it was a lot of, you know, popping into trusted professors or administrators' offices, like, hey, did you like send me a letter? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And then once I did find her, you know, we met several times. She told me her entire story. She was, she was very, very nervous about using her name. And we ultimately did not because of the cultural ramifications it, it would have had for her and social. And so, you know, the, the next two months I spent in the empty bedroom of my two bedroom apartment. I know in Kansas, you can afford that, <laughs> not in New York, but with Raina Karst and Ali Chrome. And we just made a, a timeline of events on the wall of this room and we each had our jobs. So I was lead reporter. I, I did the interviews, conducted, you know, found the research. Raina was our fact checker, just like a huge help. And Allie played a really unique role that we kind of jokingly called the, the devil's advocate, but was really important. And what her job was, was to just go through and poke holes, you know, just tell me that I was wrong. So that, that sounds a lot like, like right out of Spotlight, basically. We actually did play the Spotlight soundtrack while we worked to feel, you know, it was, it was a really hard time. And like I said, we were still students at this time. So we're balancing doing this giant reporting project and we still have like homework and, and essays to turn in. So if you, <laughs> if you had advice to recommend to someone that was going to do something like that was essentially put in that position at a student media organization, what, what advice would you give them? My biggest advice is is to not undervalue your teammates. I mean, the team is what made that story take place. Like I could have done all of the work on my own, but if I hadn't had, you know, well, at first our advisor who Max McCoy taught us everything to begin with, but then Allie, you know, poking holes and, and Raina, like helping me build this case, I don't think it would have, it would have been done. And I think it can be very easy as journalists, you know, we, we have big egos, we can let that get in the way of working with each other. But so my biggest advice is to just if you can, if you can suspend that ego, like at all, um, to, to be a good partner, like that is the most important thing. Is the whole poker now like an editor somewhere? Allie, yeah. she actually teaches journalism. 
at a high school in Topeka, Kansas. So she's teaching the next generation how to poke holes. That's great. <laughs> Seems appropriate. So from there, Columbia Journalism School. You got into every grad school that you applied to, based off of what I read. You go from rural Kansas to college to New York City and at Columbia in the middle of Manhattan. You did further sexual assault coverage. This was a team reporting for ProPublica on dating apps and their response times and response levels to sexual assault complaints and the role of content moderators within that. What are the most notable things that you learned from that work? I don't think I put a lot of thought to how dating apps work before this. I, th I think it was just something that people used, I had used. And it was sobering to kind of think about, well, what happens when, when something really tragic takes place? So a big part of my job working on that project was we had a database of cases. And so I was just sifting through them. And so these were all users who met someone on a dating app and had been subsequently abused by that person. Many of them had reported their cases to the app, some, you know, with various levels of, of evidence, screenshots, that sort of things. And a majority had received, you know, less than satisfactory results. You know, we did have a few cases that were okay. The survivor was satisfied, but, you know, it was a lot to kind of balance how to take in all of those um, um, stories. And so, but additionally within that, my focus on the project was looking at how dating apps that cater to the LGBTQ community and if there was, if there were differences in that, the responses. And so one thing that I was not surprised by, but I felt was particularly heartbreaking is that while all users of dating apps that we found were, were vulnerable in some way, there was an increased layer of risk for those in the LGBTQ community. And often these risks were multi-layered. Um, you know, it, it, it was difficult for many of them to even think about reporting these crimes because of their identity and how they, you know, might be treated by law enforcement or their communities. And so, you know, when I talked to women survivors and they were worried about coming, uh, it was mostly because they were worried of how people might judge them, their actions, what had happened to them. And the LGBTQ users that I talked to had those same fears, but on top of that, you, you have to realize like you're not just outing them as a survivor of sexual assault, but you're also outing them as, as a gay person. and and. Uh, so it was a very tricky, tricky thing to navigate. I could, it strikes me too that with having to process and essentially input all of these awful things that happen to these people, that keeping your own sanity and keeping your own mental health in good shape is important. What did you find with that? I spent a lot of time looking at the East River <laughs> 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 and the Hudson. I mean, that sounds like, it sounds darker than I mean it. But what I really mean is I find a lot of solace in nature. I've always loved to be outside. And so when it just got to be too much, I, I know kids kind of jokingly say, go touch grass, but for real, like go touch grass and just, you know, remember there's more than just the, the hard things that you're seeing in front of you. Sure. Because this could apply to anyone that, that is potentially listening that's from a, a smaller area. How is the acclimation to New York City? Oh, it was really tough. And I maybe I'm a little embarrassed to admit this. I didn't know what a borough was when I arrived. <laughs> I did not understand. Maybe I'm not entirely still sure. Just kidding. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was, well, I always wanted to live in New York from a very, very young age. 
being in Kansas, New York is this magical place on the screen, right? And so even from being like a tiny little tot when I was, you know, watching cartoons like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles all the way to, you know, more sophisticated viewings and depictions of New York, I just, I really wanted to be there. And so I couldn't pass up of course, the opportunity to come. But I think the thing that struck me most, like my my intro reporting class, we were assigned the Bronx. And so within that, we were each assigned a community and I was assigned Mott Haven. And it was kind of like laughed at, like, oh, look at this like Kansas chick. She got assigned Mott Haven. That's kind of, <laughs> are we sure she's going to be okay? But what I found just so profound was that the people, as I talked to them and their issues, it was like, being at home. I mean, people are really kind of the same. And some of those feelings like the people in the Bronx have about being forgotten, like the the overlooked borough of the city and, and worried about like, you know, are people investing in us? Are people thinking about us? I mean, that's hello, is that not Kansas? Like the over, you know, the overlooked flyover state in the middle of the country, no one ever thinks about unless they watch the Wizard of Oz. So I don't know. I, I didn't find as much a trouble as I think some people, some people thought I might, but uh, yeah. Well, that, that's good that you found that, and it's good that you have since come, come back. Just to touch on one other place that you worked, you worked for a year and a half at the Wichita Eagle reporting on climate change as part of Report for America. I understand that you really, really, really like Report for America. So what was yes. that like? That might have been the hardest job I, I ever had. Environmental reporting will forever have a soft place in my heart. Like we've talked about, I love, you know, being in nature. I was so excited to get to go back to my home state to report on nature and the environment. But, and the Wichita Eagle, you know, great group of people, as we've talked about, Report for America. It's probably one of the most encouraging journalism initiatives I've seen recently in this country. And I would encourage everyone listening to go listen to those episodes <laughs> featuring those Report for America reporters because they're, yeah, it's it's a really, really amazing organization and, and definitely saved me during the pandemic. The reason I say it was difficult. So, you know, unlike the coastal regions, people in the Midwest or the, the Plains region, as we, we are in Kansas, they don't talk about climate change in the same way. Even the word itself is deeply divisive and so political that the people who were actually experiencing the material effects of climate change refused to say the word. I mean, I spent hours driving down gravel and dirt roads and talked to farmers and ranchers all across the state. And they could tell me all day about the changes they'd seen and the realities of how climate change was affecting their land, their their produce, their crop, their cows, like their home. But it was very difficult to get anyone, you know, whether they are citizen, public official, or even, you know, our environmental stewards to even say the word climate change. So I had to be, you know, really creative in, in how I, I wrote the pieces. But, but there weren't a shortage of stories because there are a lot of people in Kansas who are doing really, really important things. They understand the severity of the issue. And this issue is not just serious for the state, for the nation. I mean, this is our, our food supply. And so without even realizing it, like we in this country are relying very heavily on, on these people in Kansas and, and, and similar places to be the movers and shakers. And that's the stories I wanted to tell. Who are they? What are they doing to confront these issues? What you should know? And maybe, you know, like how you can help. <laughs> 
So. So from there to the Committee to Protect Journalists, let's start by explaining what CPJ is. A surface level description would be an independent nonprofit that promotes press freedom and defends journalists' rights. It takes action when journalists are under threat, founded in 1981. What's a more in-depth description and explanation of what CPJ does? So work, we often talk about CPJ as being a three-legged stool. <laughs> so our first leg is our international programs. And so these are comprised of researchers based all around the world. CPJ works in more than 120 countries, many suffering under you know, oppressive regimes, conflict, other circumstances circumstances that harm, you know, press freedom and put their journalists at risk. So these, these researchers are experts in their geographic region, and they do the reporting aspect of our organization. So, you know, they meet with journalists who've been threatened, arrested, if they've been killed, you know, meeting with the family, and they're, they're really like the foundation of the organization. So the information they gather goes to the second leg, which is where I work. And so I work in editorial, we work with the researcher to create news alerts, informing the public of what has happened and CPJ stance. And so CPJ will often call on authorities to take specific action to rectify the situation or at least bring some semblance of justice. Editorial also, we build and maintain databases of information about journalists who've been killed or imprisoned and create reports looking at trends or developments. And so our biggest goal is basically to repackage this incredibly hard fought for and vital information that our researchers gather into understandable narratives that can you know, reach the general public when proliferated through the news media. Our third leg is our emergencies team. And so they're the ones, they provide the life-saving support to staff around the world. And so, as well as safety and security information and rapid response assistance. So this, this is everything. This included, you know, sending helmets and flak jackets to the journalists in Ukraine after the war broke out, all the way to providing immediate assistance to reporters in Afghanistan after the fall of Kabul and the Taliban return to power. So we are very important. Every, you know, leg is extremely important. And, and that's the, where CPJ rests on. How did you uh, end up there? Yeah, well, I was looking for a position where I didn't have to do as much original reporting myself. I have some, you know, personal projects that I wanted to focus on and reporting eats up like a ton of time. And so, but I've always been passionate about defending the first amendment. Something my advisor, Max McCoy, used to say to us was that part of the job of a reporter is to be an ambassador for journalism and to explain to the public, you know, what it is we do. I mean, you do this very well. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, this is going to be even more important going forward in this country as we try to move away from being seen as the enemy of the people. So CPJ was it was a dream job for me because I was able to, you know, take a, that half step back from reporting, but also, you know, have the opportunity to work with really amazing, inspirational people and defend the press. And essentially use the same skills that you would use uh, as a journalist in a, in a traditional, traditional, quote, journalism role. And it occurs to me, too, that like we hear about some cases, Daniel Pearl is a case that we hear about. It, it eventually becomes a movie. 
and that's how a lot of people become familiar with it. There are other, there are documentaries that you see every so often. Maria stuff about things about Maria Ressa would be another example of that. But it occurs to me too that for every one of those, there are probably fifty that we don't know about. Would that be right? Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be with anything the the big public figures that kind of represent what journalists are, are going through. I think that's what Mar Maria Ressa really, you know, she is not just, it, it's not just about her experience, but also about all of the journalist experiences in that country. And so, yeah, I'm, oh man, there's just so many journalists there really are. And there are a lot of people that they're doing really good work. And so we just want to be do what we can to make sure they can keep doing that good work. So I'm a stats person, and I was—I saw some stats on your site. CPJ helped free 130 imprisoned journalists in 2022, aided in the conviction and the murders of 12 journalists, provided assistance to 520 journalists in 49 countries. Are there any other statistics that we should know about journalists being threatened, harmed, or killed? Yeah, so since 1992, I think this is sort of our biggest statistic is so since 1992, CPJ has documented the death of 1,471 journalists who died in direct connection to their work. So part of these 1,471 are those that died in crossfire or during a dangerous assignment. So this would be like, like journalists covering the war in Ukraine, but others were murdered in in direct retaliation for the reporting. And we saw this recently in the Jeff German case in Las Vegas. He was an investigative journalist for the Las Vegas Review Journal who covered crime and political corruption and was stabbed to death outside his home in September, 2022. The person arrested in that case lost a reelection bid a few months prior after German had reported on his alleged mismanagement in his office. So. And I think the other like harrowing statistic for me is so in 2022 and so far in 2023 this year, we have lost 73 journals. So these are people that in 2021 we had, we don't anymore. 45 of those were killed directly connected to their work. CPJ were, you know, investigating the other 28, but you know, so far this year and last, you know, we've lost 73 journalists. And I think that's, it's a really big number. It is. I'm looking through some of the different news items on your site from the last few months. I see stories about Russia, Turkey, Tunisia, Kazakhstan, Somalia, Ethiopia, Peru, Afghanistan. Are there examples of parts of the world that CPJ eyes particularly closely? Yeah. So at CPJ, I, I know we try very hard to look at the whole world because we take our job as, as documenters of this very seriously. And in some cases, we may be the only ones actually writing and keeping a record of it. And so, but there will always be areas that need more resources, either because of their unique social or, or political you know, developments. CPJ has dubbed Ukraine the worst press freedom crisis in 40 years. I don't think there's another place in the world where it is as critical for the international community to be receiving timely, factual, and independent news than Ukraine. And those journalists are facing extraordinarily dangerous and scary situations every single day that they're out 
reporting. And even when they're not, I mean, 13, since the war started in Ukraine, 13 journalists have been killed doing this critical reporting. Some, several others injured and at least four journalists were held by Russian forces before they were released. So Ukraine, of course, has been a focus. Recently, also, the U.S. has become a, a bit a blip on our radar. This is the first time in my, albeit short tenure at CPJ, that I have seen us focus on U.S. on the U.S. in this way, and that's because in the last six months we've seen two journalists murdered: the first, Jeff German, in Las Vegas, and then the more recent fatal shooting of the Spectrum News 13 broadcast reporter Dylan Lyons in, in Orange County, Florida. What did you do yesterday or today or, or within a recent day? Like, what's your, what exactly are you doing? The work at CPJ is pretty consistent, which is, was another draw for me over the traditional journalist role. But, you know, so I log on and basically we just work through the day's news. So all of the programs, they send in what is happening in their regions. And then we decide each day, okay, well, what are the most pressing issues? Where can we have the most impact? And then we, you know, I get to work one-on-one with the researchers and it's a pretty traditional editing style to get the news out. And, and, and that's what I do basically all day. The only real change is, you know, if we have a special report or something, you know, big coming up that that'll take up a lot of time, you know, getting the data together and, and fact-checking and even just little things like making it presentable on our website. So I just talked to a journalism class today. We're talking on March 7th, and I reiterated this theme to them as I talked to them, and that was when you're interviewing someone, you want to get a sense of what it looked like, sounded like, smelled like, and felt like. And I'm curious because this is particularly impactful work, and there aren't a lot of journalism jobs where you're literally playing a role in potentially saving lives. What does it feel like to do this job? I don't know if that's true because I think I do think you can save a person's life in many ways as a reporter. And I, I don't want to downplay, you know, how essential it is for people to see themselves and their stories and people like sure. them, you know, represented. But but you're right, you know, CPJ is able to offer a physical support in a way that traditional news orgs cannot. You know, we've briefly talked about Afghanistan. You know, CPJ directly assisted in 80 Afghan journalists and their families after the fall of Kabul. And and that was a really scary time for journalists in that country because, you know, all of a sudden they were not allowed to work. They may be killed for doing their jobs. So CPJ's support included financial support for those in exile and those who remained in Afghanistan, letters of support and, you know, covering the costs of, of flights out of Afghanistan. But, you know, the reality is that journalists are under attack worldwide. And so, you know, this means like, that while I'm proud of the work that I do, there is a, a tension because there's there's never a shortage of, of press freedom violations for us to to shine our light on. And so learning how to pick and choose where you're most helpful, where you can have the greatest impact and to just focus your energy there, that has brought some peace, I think, to my mind. And it's an interesting job in that in a lot of cases, you're pretty far removed from these stories in that you're in New York. And a lot of what you're dealing with is thousands of miles away in completely different parts of the world. What enables you to make an empathetic connection to some of the things that you're working on and what CPJ is doing? Well, 
One thing that I've learned in my life is that, and this is something I honestly do live by, is that pain is pain. You know, it doesn't matter your gender, your race, sexual orientation, where you come from, or anything really. Like at the end of the day, we all know what pain feels like and how devastating loss can be. You know, I had a law professor at Columbia who told us told us all once that his job as a media lawyer was not to tell reporters that they couldn't publish something, but to do everything he could to work with that reporter so that the story could be published. And so that's the energy that I try to bring to CPJ. It doesn't matter to me, you know, like where you are or your background. I think that if you've made a conscious decision to try to make this world a better place by telling other people's stories and holding those in power to account, that that's something that should not just be celebrated, but respected and honored. And so I try to do that. And in, and in my mind, I think the very least that I can do, if you've made that decision, is do everything I can to protect you and help you keep doing what you do. Essentially, as this is a phrase I like to use outside of this podcast, but what the professor said is essentially find your way to yes. Yeah. Yes, this will be published. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will take care of this. That's 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 great. That's a good good way to to live by. What's the best part of the job? Without a doubt, the best part of my job is like working with our researchers and our international programs. I mean, we just have the most amazing group of people. They are wicked smart, incredibly dedicated to press freedom. And I will say, like, I mean, I. I I'm only 25. I hope I have a lot of life ahead of me, but I think with confidence, I, can, I will be able to say that it will be and has been one of the greatest privileges of my life to get to work with them and shepherd this vital reporting you know, through the, the publication process. How has this job impacted how you view the world as a whole? I think when I was young, I viewed the place, the world, as this place filled with and, and maybe even completely run by entropy. <laughs> the randomness of life could not be explained and who knew why terrible things happened. <laughs> and of course, like some of that, that's still. But I think what CPJ has helped me see is the world as a series of kind of complex, albeit imperfect systems. And I think it's our job as journalists to identify the problem areas in these systems and name them and their harm. And so I don't know if it's given me a sense of control or maybe just an illusion of control, but I think it gives me hope that we can make the world a better place because it's not just random. This is set up by people. And if it's been set up by people, it can be improved by people. And the value certainly of action and speaking up, as I think you've yes. learned in all of your journalism jobs. So editor and publisher asked you if you had advice for young journalists and you talked about finding a niche. This, it was, that was about the most me answer that you could have possibly <laughs> given. I am with you a hundred percent. And I was wondering if you can elaborate on this and your experience with niches. Yeah. So when I was at Columbia, I had this professor ask me uh, where I wanted to be. And I honestly like really didn't know. <laughs> So I just said, the New York Times, you know, like, <laughs> isn't that what everyone wants? And I remember she shot me back with like a, is it? <laughs> and it, it, that really stumped me for a while because I kind of thought, 
yeah, like, isn't that what everyone wants? But I think I finally realized this dream of to be at the New York Times wasn't so much my dream as I think it was like me responding to the pressure in our industry to become big or great or, you know, really important. And so, so what I was referring to when I said, you know, like find your, your niche is that we all have things that we're passionate about. We all have our unique talents. And I would just hate to let anyone get pigeonholed into a specific idea because that's the like, quote unquote, right way to do journalism. I don't think there's one right way to do journalism. There's only one wrong way to do it. And that's to lie. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think my message is like dream big you know you're only confined by your imagination and there is a lot of world out there so you know do do what you love because life is also very short how dangerous is it to be a journalist in 2023 i think it's certainly not easy i mean okay i'm 25 years old and i have received death threats rape threats i've had stalkers i've had to pay out of my own pocket to remove public information about myself from the internet. I've received hate mail. When I was a climate reporter, I was greeted every single day with an email just listing all of the vile things that they thought I was. I've been sued three times. All three were dismissed, but it was it was still a scary situation. And I don't want to undersell, I don't want to undersell how these lawsuits can be used as an intimidation tactic. So you know, and that's just a young person's career. You know, like I really haven't done a lot and, and journalists don't make a lot of money anyway. So I just, there are significant mental and physical health concerns here. And, and so I think that's what makes it dangerous. You know, it'll vary country to country, region to region, like what the threats to the, the individual journalists are. But I think the one thing that we can say with incredible certainty is that there are always threats because there are always people who want to deny the truth and we're in the business of truth. So would you recommend the career to someone else? You know, I have asked myself a lot about what my responsibility is as I mentor a lot of young women, a lot of, you know, students of color or students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, sometimes even poverty. And I asked myself, you know, what is my responsibility as I talk to them about journalism? You know, I work at the Committee to Protect Journalists. So as they're considering this, how do I, how do I protect them? And I think, I mean, the best thing I, I do recommend the career, but I just recommend it with your eyes open, you know, be aware of, of the threats. These are things that are, are. I think some people might dismiss or think aren't that serious, but they really, really are. And so I would recommend the career as long as I, I knew the person knew what they were getting into, or at least had an, a good enough idea. So also one follow-up off of your editor and publisher mini interview that they published, you said that you liked having a day job because it was a job that allowed you to pursue other projects, including writing books. What books are you working on? Yeah, I've got a few passion projects, but the main thing I'm working on right now is it's a, a memoir of sorts, kind of thinking about the culture that I grew up in. I grew up in a very fundamental religious structure 
I navigated the foster care system in a rural state that is not known for funding their foster care system. And I just, thinking about how those experiences influenced me, not just as a person, but as a young woman and like my relationship with my family. And so, you know, as I, I, I think my hope is that I'm able to connect with readers who have family members or people that they love that are, that don't agree with them politically or may not be able to see them for who they are and work to bridge that gap because that's what I hope to do in my own personal life. And I, I think that that would be something that resonates with a lot of people politically in this country, because even I think we all have a lot of questions for each other about why we believe what we do. And I, I hope this may answer that or at least give some insight. That's cool. Is that the only book that you're working on? Because you said books in the editor and publisher. Yeah. So well, I've got a couple other books that I'm working on that are a little sillier. They're more like fantasy based off of a couple of Dungeons and Dragon campaigns that I've written. And the others are environmental books. I did a lot of reporting in Kansas that I just didn't get to. And a lot of stuff about public land versus private land. I don't know if you know this, Kansas has the least amount of publicly owned land in all of the country. And that plays a really big role in how the culture in Kansas deals with land and thinks about land. And yeah, anyway, there's just, there's so much there that I'd love to do environmentally that I um, would make really good books or at least like long essay pieces, like maybe for a magazine. So. This being Women's History Month, our last question is in two parts. We salute you for your good work and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a woman in journalism history that you would like to salute for their good work? Yes, actually, and I I have so many. So Nellie Bly was the first story of a journalist that I was like, wow, I want to be her. And so I don't, for those of you who don't know who Nellie Bly was, she was a reporter here in New York and she went undercover, this is what she's most famous for, is going undercover a insane asylum, posing as a patient to write about the conditions there and how they treated women, especially, and especially immigrant women who's, who couldn't speak English. And the just terrible conditions and she's a very trusting person because a man had to check her out so she had to trust that her editor would come get her but he did and, and she wrote these great stories and yeah so the other woman in history I would love to salute is probably maybe a little less well known I don't I'm not sure Dorothy Thompson who was a really prominent reporter here in the U.S. but before that she was, you know, in Germany and she was actually expelled by the Nazis for her reporting because she she was very supportive of, of you know, Jewish people and, and democracy and, and other things that they didn't want to hear about. Sure. Is there someone contemporary that you would like to cite as well? Yeah, so I have, I have two again. Emily Adkin, she established the Heated Newsletter and Zoya Tirtha, who's a staff writer covering climate change at Grist were like, I don't even know how to explain my mo like my Moses <laughs> of climate change reporting. When I first started, I just like read every single thing those two ladies put pen to paper. And if you like really want to, you know, read some smart reporting that 
contextualizes things in, in a very like nuanced way and, and learn about things that you didn't. These women, they, they have it for you. All right. Sarah Spicer, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in your journalism pursuits. Please keep in touch. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The Committee to Protect Journalists is an independent nonprofit organization that promotes press freedom worldwide. They defend the right of journalists to report the news safely and without fear of reprisal. Learn more about them at cpj.org. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.